Okay, so friends, because this is a combined service, and next, next Sunday will be as well, the Christmas passage that I'm choosing to preach on today will be taken from Luke chapter 2, because that also happens to be the section of the sermon series that the afternoon service is also on. They happen to be in Luke chapter 2, so it kind of works out perfectly uh, for, for everyone. And what we'll see today in Luke chapter 2 is more than just a Christmas story. Have you ever heard that phrase, show more, tell less? You hear it a lot in literature classes, right? When you're trying to learn how to write a story, the teacher would say, tell less, show more. Meaning, if you want to point out the fact that, for example, the main character loves his wife, what you want to do is you don't want to just write that in a sentence, Johnny loves his wife. It's like, okay, you don't want to just tell the people that. What you want to do is you want to write in stories, you see, you want to write in certain events in the plot line that shows the readers the fact that Johnny does truly indeed love his wife. So, for example, you want to make him jump out of a car to save her or something. I don't know. Show more, tell less. And that's exactly what God's doing here in Luke chapter 2. He's telling us a story, yes, but it's more than that. Through every event that happens in the story, God is trying to show us who he is. He's trying to show us the contents of his heart. And the hope is, after the readers read this story and see everything that God's trying to show us about himself, they'll respond at the end of the story like Mary did. How? Well, let's, let's get into it. This is the word of God, the story about Jesus' birth, taken from Luke chapter 2, verse 1 to 21. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was a governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, whom was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and laying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby laying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that I've been told them concerning this child. 
And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Thus says the Lord. All right, three points for today. It's only when God shows you how he uses all of his power to reconcile with you will he then become your treasure. Only when God shows you how he uses all of his power to reconcile with you will he then become your treasure. All right, let's go to our first point. How do we see here in this passage God using all of his power? Well, let's, let's look at it again. So the story starts off, and, and this is important, it starts off with a historical detail. And that's important because like we talked about last week, this shows us that, that the biblical stories here claim to be what? Actual events that actually happened in time and in history. These aren't just legends, you see. This happened, verse 1, in the days of Caesar Augustus. So that dates this event as sometime between 27 B.C. to 14 A.D. That's when Augustus ruled as Caesar. But more specifically than that, in verse 2, it says that it happened when Quirinius was governor during Augustus' reign. So that further narrows down this event to happen sometime between 12 B.C. and 14 A.D. Okay? It claims that it actually happened at this time. And, And the census, the registration that's recorded here, that actually was a law that was put in place during Augustus and Quirinius's reign, they started a, a census, a registration process for all the Jews under their reign. Why? To officially register them for taxation purposes. Okay, because you don't know. You, can, you can't track down who's paid taxes and who hasn't unless the people are, are registered somehow. Okay, so to make the registration price more, uh, process more efficient, what Quirinius and, and Augustus did is that they made every Jew or Jewish uh, area under their rule, under Rome rule, register each family to their own hometown. So it's kind of like how we today, we may live somewhere else, but our kartu kwarga, right, our family cards are registered under the erta and erwe of our own domicili, right, of our own area. So we register somewhere, although we live in a different area. That, that's kind of like what's happening here. So Joseph and Mary, a young married couple who at the time lived in Nazareth, our passage says, had to go all the way back to Joseph's hometown, which is where? Bethlehem, to get registered there, which was like 150 kilometers away, about the distance from Jakarta to Bandung. So they got to Bethlehem, and Jesus was born. Nice story, but remember, God's trying to show us something here through this event. And it may not be obvious at first, but what we just read is God showing us just how powerful he is. How? Well, by the fact that Jesus ended up being born in Bethlehem. Open up your liturgy printouts again. Take a look at the call to worship, which is taken from the book of Micah in the Old Testament, which is written long ago before Jesus was actually born. Take a look at verse 2 in your call to worship, Where did God promise the Messiah would be born in? In Bethlehem. 
Okay, so what's the big deal about that? God made that happen. That shouldn't be too hard for God. Yes. But look at the way God made it happen. Why was Jesus born in Bethlehem? It was because all these powerful earthly emperors and rulers for their own political agenda unknowingly did God's work for him. Do you see that in the story? Think about it. If it wasn't for Augustus and Quirinius' census, Joseph and Mary would have probably still been where? In Nazareth. And Jesus probably most likely would have been born where? In Nazareth. But yet, because Augustus and Quirinius was raised up to power and had this idea for a census, Joseph and Mary was forced to travel back to Bethlehem, which is Joseph's hometown, to the city of King David, it says, and deliver Jesus there, just as promised in the Old Testament. Caesar Augustus, who, by the way, doubled the size of Rome during his reign. Caesar Augustus, who was so powerful, they even named a whole month after him. They did. August was named after him. Google it. Quirinius, one of the richest men back then in Rome, also a very powerful military leader. He defeated two of Rome's biggest enemies back then. Augustus and Quirinius, God used them to do his work without them even realizing it. God turned whole governments to be mere tools. If that's not power, And after that, you don't even hear about Augustus and Quirinius ever again. It's like their names aren't even mentioned anymore. The most powerful earthly kings were just side characters that needed to get out of the way for Jesus, the true king, to appear, which is where our attention immediately turns to. Look at all the kingly language associated with Jesus here. First, he was destined to be born in Bethlehem, which is a city of King David. See the kingly association there? And then look at verse 7. When he was born, it says that Mary gave birth to her Firstborn son. Okay, why not just say son? Why say firstborn son? Because in a kingly lineage, who gets the throne? The firstborn son. And then the reader starts to think. They're they're seeing all this stuff, and they're thinking, a firstborn son, birthed in the city of King David, a child for whom Caesars and kings and whole governments are merely supporting characters for. It's like, who's this kid? (laughs) Who's this child? And then you look at the end of verse 2 in your call to worship earlier from Micah chapter 5, and you realize this child, Micah says, is the ancient of days himself. Who's that? It's God. That's the claim of the Bible. It's God who's come to claim his throne. The promise was real. He came to us not in a castle made of gold and silver, but in a manger, which literally means animal feed, so most likely on a piece of hay. He was wrapped in swaddling cloth, like a rugged piece of cloth, kind of like a badong, you know? He was wrapped in a swaddle. I mean, if God's trying to show us something about himself here, there are tons of things we can learn about God. But perhaps most notably is this. See from the story the fact that the Almighty God, who's powerful enough to puppeteer whole governments, used all of his might and used 
all of his power to do what? To make sure he came for you. God used all of his power to make a way to you. Which leads us to our second point. Take a look here, friends, at who God first declared this news to. There weren't kings or aristocrats. There were shepherds, everyday blue-collar working men who were probably out in the field, right? Picture this in your head. They're, they're out in the pitch-black night, tending the sheep, minding their own business. And suddenly, it says, without warning, a bright light punch through the mundane darkness of their night, and the glory of the Lord shone to them, verse 9 says, and out of that glory came the words, for unto you, unto you, a child is born. Now, now the you here is, is plural, of course, right? Unto you all. Verse 10 says that this news is for all people. But friends, you can't miss the personal language in this statement. Look, unto you. These angels looked directly at these working men and said, for you he came. For you he made a way. And suddenly, verse 13 says, a multitude of the heavenly hosts started singing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, many commentators agree that the way Luke chose to write this particular scene was very similar to how choruses were written back then into Greek plays. If you're familiar with Greek plays, whenever there's a plot twist in the story, what would happen is that the main character would kind of step aside, usually accompanied by others, and they would just start singing they would start singing about the plot twist. Why? To signify how important and how, how, how weighty this plot twist is. But what's the plot twist here? The plot twist is the fact that there is now peace between God and man, between he who is in the highest and those on earth. Because if you think about it, that's not how the story's been going before this event. There wasn't much peace between God and man. And you see that displayed by how the shepherds reacted to the glory of God here when it suddenly appeared in verse 9. What does it say? The glory of God appeared and the shepherds did what? They were filled with great fear. And this is more than just fear from the shock of, of the light itself, which I'm sure was scary. But there's a deeper point being made here about mankind. What point? Isn't it interesting that if you take a look at the whole Bible, Old Testament to New Testament, every time God's glory suddenly appeared to humans, how did we react? We freak out. <laughs> we get scared. Isn't that interesting? Think about it. When Adam and Eve saw God in the garden, what did they do after they sinned? They were scared, and they, they hid. When God said, saw Abraham in, in Genesis 15, he was filled with terror, it literally says. Moses saw God's glory and did what? Hid his face. The Israelites in Mount Sinai, when they beheld God's glory, what did they do? They trembled. Isaiah, a prophet, saw God's glory in the temple, and he said, I'm an unclean man. It's like every time God comes unannounced and, and show up, we freak out. We become unhinged like the shepherds here. But why? Why is that? What's the deeper point being made here? 
It's this. The Bible's trying to tell us that, friends, the reason why everybody does that is because deep inside, every single one of us know that we have failed him. We failed him. Look, if your boss suddenly turns up at your office unexpected and you go, oh, hey there, boss man, looking good, come on in, let's hang out. That probably tells you that you're in a good relationship with him. You feel like everything is well and there's nothing wrong. But if your boss shows up unexpectedly at your office and you panic, you're filled with great terror and you go, what are you doing here? Hopefully you don't do that because you'll get fired. But if you react, if that's your knee-jerk reaction, what does that tell you? That tells you that deep inside, you know something's wrong. Deep inside, you know that all is not well between you and this person. In the Bible, mankind's knee-jerk reaction every time God appears unannounced is to freak out, like the shepherds here. We almost never welcome him, much less seek him. And I think that continues today. Why is it, for example, do you think that many of us avoid going to church until maybe the season calls for it? For example, when it happens to fall on December 25th during Christmas. Why don't we make the effort? Well, Tez, I'm, I'm just busy. I got a lot of stuff going on. Okay, but usually when there's a will, there's a way. Some of the busiest people I know go to church every Sunday. Might there be another reason? This passage is suggesting, actually it's proclaiming, but to soften the blow, I'll use suggesting. This passage is suggesting that it's not because we're too busy. It's not because we, we don't have the time. But it's because like the shepherds here, deep inside, we know that we're actually not in the best terms with God. Might it be, this passage is saying, because deep inside, whenever we go to places or think of things or ponder upon events, that forces us to come face to face with the idea of God, there's an existential angst that our souls immediately taste. Have you ever wondered why every time the concept of religion comes into play, there's always an aspect of penance that comes with it? Like in any religion. Why is that? Because like the shepherds here, and like all of mankind throughout history, our bodies may be able to pretend, our minds may be able to deny, our hands may be able to distract, but our souls, our souls know that we are not in good terms with the ancient of days. And we're scared. And to these terrified shepherds, the angelic chorus sings, unto you, unto you, a child is born for you. A child is born. There's a plot twist. Because of this child, it's possible now that when your heart thinks of God, what it'll feel is not dread, 
but great joy. How? How will this child do that? Let's go to our last point. It's only when you see God use all of his power to reconcile himself with you will he then become your treasure. The shepherds here, driven by this shocking plot twist, wanted to see for themselves, right, whether or not this news was true. Was there really a child in Bethlehem, swaddled in ragged cloth, laying on a piece of hay? So in verse 16, they went into town, because they're probably just located out of town, and they found him. They found Mary and Joseph with this child, and they told everyone there about what they just saw and heard about this child. And interestingly, when they told everyone, there are two different reactions here toward this message. And this is a really important part of the passage. Two different reactions. Verse 18 says, The masses wondered at the news. Kind of this awe and wonder. But, verse 19 says, contrasting Mary's reaction from the crowd, but, on the other hand, different than the rest, Mary treasured the news. The masses wondered, Mary treasured. What's the difference? See, in the New Testament, a lot of people oftentimes would see Jesus or hear Jesus, and they'd be in awe and wonder. But oftentimes, these very same people are the people who would then end up leaving him. That happens over and over and over again in the New Testament, in in the Gospels. And here's Luke's question for us today. You're hearing this news about Jesus. You're hearing this news about how the King of Kings has made a way and used all of his power and might to make a way to you. Are you swept up in wonder, or are you treasuring it? Now, what's the difference? How do you know that you're treasuring this news? Well, let's continue on in verse 19. It says that because Mary treasured it, she pondered about it in her heart. Treasuring equals heart pondering, which means, friends, when you treasure something, it'll make your heart think. When you treasure something, it'll make your heart think. See, pondering is usually a brain activity, right? It's when you attempt to put together separate pieces of data into one big understandable whole. That's, that's pondering. That's usually an exercise for the brain. Yet Mary here was described to have pondered about this child, to have pondered about this news of Jesus. Where? Not in her brain, but in her heart. Her heart started to think. Let me explain. See, if you hear a piece of news that makes your mind churn, but it puts your heart to sleep, well, that means you haven't really treasured it. That means you're merely interested in it. Your mind's going, but your heart's asleep. But on the other hand, if a piece of news makes you feel all these emotions, but you're, you're not thinking about, you're not reasoning about the truthfulness behind it, well, that's not treasuring either. That's called euphoria. When Mary heard about Jesus, our passage says, she didn't find it interesting or euphoric. She found it to be a treasure. She pondered it in her heart. Everything she knew to be true about life in her head and in her heart finally clicked. That's what it means. It founds its source. Everything that makes life, life. Things like purpose, ethics, our need for relationships, virtues like mercy and forgiveness, this idea called justice, this entity called love. Everything that makes life, life. When she saw this child, she started to ponder about all of these things through the lenses of God's pursuit of his sinful people. It's all in that category. She's thinking about all of these things in the lenses of God, who's 
pursued his sinful people who's ethically failed. We all have. We've ethically failed to live out our purpose of glorifying him. And we justly deserve none of him. But yet, in his mercy and forgiveness, he sought a real relationship with us because he loves us. And all these things she knows to be true about life started not only to make sense in her heart, but it started to sing. Life sung. As C.S. Lewis once quoted, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because through it I see everything else. That's what it means to ponder, to treasure in your heart. Now, what does treasuring look like? That's what it feels like. What does it look like? Let's go to verse 21. In one simple verse, Mary named this child Jesus. Why? Because it says that's what the angel told her to do earlier in the story. So what does treasuring look like? It looks like obedience. You obey. Is this how we find our hearts responding to this news today? You're hearing right now this news, this claim that claims to actually happen in time and history, in the days of Caesar Augustus, that God, the ancient of days, the king of kings, wrote himself into our story, clothed in human flesh. In his humility, he sought us and he pursued us. Does the things that make life life now make more sense? Does it start to sing? Does it feel more beautiful? Does it drive us toward obedience of him? And if this isn't the case for us just yet, if, if we're not feeling these things, well, maybe. Maybe it's because we haven't really understood the full story. What's so marvelous about God coming down to visit us, you might think? Well, see, that, that's the thing. Friends, in this story, what it's telling us is he didn't just come to visit us like presidents would come to visit a neighborhood. He came to do much more, and it's hinted here, even in his birth. See, at this point of the story, he's a baby wrapped in ragged clothes. But later, if you read the story, you'll see him grow up, and you'll see this baby host a dinner with his friends called the Last Supper, where he would again raise up from his chair, take off his garments, and put on, wrap himself in a servant's cloth, and wash his friend's feet. But if you continue to read on in the story, there will come a day when this baby will be nailed on a cross. But this time, he's fully naked, wrapped only by his own blood, and wrapped only by the consequences of our sin. He didn't come to us to hang out. He came to us to substitute himself for our sins. He came to switch places with us. He used all of his power and all of his might to make sure that he ends up on that cross instead of us who fail him every single day. His life starting to sing a little bit more. See the phrase, show more, tell less. 
applies not only in literature, but also in love. Why would the Ancient of Days write such a story where he ends up dying on a cross to save his people? Because, friends, it's one thing for him to tell us that he loves us, and it's a whole other thing for him to show us. And on that cross, he showed us just how wide and long and high and deep his love is for his people. And that's the only way, that is the only way that God would get all of us to give unto him who we are fully. That's the only way that God will make us think of him, not only in our minds, but in our hearts, to treasure him if he shows you who he is through this child. That's why he did it. The cross is the only way he can get the utmost glory out of his people. And I invite you, friends, at this time, as we are again brought face to face with this story, I invite you to make sense of all of life through this picture of a child laying on a piece of hay. Look at life through the picture of God swaddled in a ragged piece of cloth. Ponder upon that picture in your heart. And may life not only start to make more sense to you, but also be more beautiful. Ponder upon it in your heart. Obey it. Arrange your whole lives according to it. Then sing out. Sing and join the angels who are singing about this plot twist, not just in Luke chapter 2, but eternally, with their mouths and with their lives, saying, joyful, joyful, we adore thee, God of glory, God of love. Let's pray. Our incompetence, Father, to get back to you is utterly astounding. The Bible says that we're not just sick in our sin. We're not just injured in our sin. Ephesians 2 clearly and loudly says that we are dead in our sin. And no matter how many times I scream at a grave to get up, they won't wake up. I wouldn't have woken up unless you yourself gave us life and the only way the Holy One, the Righteous One, the Just One can give life to those who are dead in their sin is only if you traded places with us. This thing we call Christianity, this place we call church, remind us, Father, is not a place that's meant to bring us before your holiness and ultimately cause us to tremble. Yes, there is a part of that, as we did in the beginning when we confessed our sins. But at the end of the day, this place is meant to bring us back to this image of this child, not only on a piece of hay wrapped in ragged cloth, but on a cross wrapped by our sins. May we now think of you through this image, know that we're forgiven every sin, every filth, every single thing that stops us from getting to you, you have thrown aside by your blood and said, 
we are yours forever. Let us now, let our hearts now, when it ponders about you, no longer be dread, be filled with dread, but instead be brought up in joy. We adore thee, God of glory, God of love. In your son's name and in his name alone, we pray.